Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Welcome, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan. Sorry, Anya, I feel like I dropped, um, I took over. Did no, I over? don't be sorry. I saw you lean over. Look at us, we're so I nice. I just wanted to say good morning. Good morning, everybody. And we've got George who is sitting across from me and Lauren. The whole team is back. And we just heard the Radioactive mm-hmm. program. Yep, yep, which is a favourite of Tuesday Breakfast. Um, Summer school. <coughs> we did it, guys. Oh. <laughs> well, we have started. We started. Look at, look at me. We are about to start. <laughs> yeah. I've wrapped it up. I said we've done it. <laughs> yeah, so you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast Summer Program. Mm. Summer at school. Mm. Mm. A special program. So we've decided to divert from our normal schedule to do something different <clears throat> because we were having a conversation between ourselves and we were saying... You know, throughout this entire year, we've used terminology, we've discussed Mm. concepts, and we've taken it for granted that not everyone understands and not everyone has um, the access to the kind of information we're talking about. Mm. So the series won't... It's Not every single person will understand it. It's not like the solution, Mm. but it is... it, it It will be now, I feel like, more accessible to a wider audience not every audience mm-hmm. but a wider audience mm-hmm. to our audience yes. yes yeah so you know george you were gonna i was gonna say that even i think we were talking about this the other day that we even are excited to learn about mm. a lot of the topics oh my gosh yes mm-hmm. yeah. so yeah yeah because i'll be honest during some interviews i'm like that word mm. should make sense but it doesn't <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or when people reference like certain books and ideas and i'm not Super yeah. well read in these spaces, yeah, and I yeah. just think, oh god, write that down quickly before anybody realizes you don't know who they're yeah. talking about. Yeah, yeah. So it's like a one-on-one on all these topics that we mm. always talk about. Mm. It's nice to start the new year like that. Definitely. Mm. Should we run through some of the? Topics? Yeah. What's yeah. happening today, Anya? So today we're going to be talking about sovereignty, self-determination, and decolonization. Mm. Big words. Mm. Yeah. But that's exactly why we're unpacking them. Yeah. Hmm. Awesome. And later on, I will have the pleasure, actually, we will all have the pleasure um, of speaking to Ronnie Carini, who is a West Papuan activist and musician, and mm. who also used to do the program Voices of West Papua. Mm. So he'll be here to talk to us about the West Papuan independence movement and just their um, struggle for self determination. Mm. So, a bit of a heavy show. If you know, listeners need to take breaks, please do. Mm. 
What the hell is a completo anyway? It's a Chilean hot dog. What happens when lots of people get together and eat completos? It becomes a completada bailable. If you really want to experience a completada bailable and support our 3CR community, come to our fundraiser Saturday, May the 19th from 7 p.m. at the Moreland City Band Room, 16 to 22 Cross Street, East Brunswick. Highly danceable tunes by DJ Randy Castilla and DJ Twins. Live music by the Amazonics. Limpiese la boquita que le quedó paltita. So we're on 3CR Community Radio. It is Tuesday morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast. And we are about to kick off our summer school programming. Um, but we did just want to chat a bit about the um, neo-Nazi rally and counter-protests that happened on Saturday in St Kilda in Melbourne. Um, so I'm sure a lot of listeners were there. I did a few um, recorders and 3CR t-shirts and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I guess we just wanted to firstly um, to mention that there is another rally happening this weekend coming up. So on the 12th of January, um, it's, an or- it's an event organised by the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. Um, it's called Melbourne Says No to Nazis and it will be happening at the State Library of Victoria, so on Swanston Street, on this Saturday, which is the 12th of January, from 1pm till approximately 3pm. Um, and it is a peaceful rally of anti-racists who are standing together against fascism and just sending a message of solidarity and unity. Um, It is not, to my knowledge, in response to any action by the fascists, so if people are concerned about that kind of thing, um, I think this is more of a a standalone protest of solidarity rather than um, a a Mm counter-protest. And you and Anya went to it. Can you...? Um, Anya didn't make it in the end, and I, um, I think... By the time you were coming, it, I don't know that you would have been honestly safe to walk in. It got really, um, mm. it actually got quite hairy at certain points. Um, there were moments where, and I, I think also just for background, if people want to read, um, Slack Bastard has written up a really good account of the day and so, sort of talked about um, formations and issues that we had in terms of being surrounded by, sort of put in a circle and then surrounded by police and then, Um, that barricade surrounded by um, racist Mm. men, mostly, and some women. Um, And it was, yeah, it was quite dicey at certain points because I was watching, for example, anti-racists try and get in to meet their friends and police not letting them in, and they were sort of just set adrift out there um, with really aggressive, really angry, um, and a lot of big men on the Nazi side roaming around, yeah, really sort of spoiling for a fight. Um, some friends of mine were sort of physically um, grabbed mm-hmm. by... Yeah, like it, it just... It was quite a a dicey kind of day. Um, and I think it, it has frightened a lot of people um, in certain communities especially. Mm. Um, I think... Yeah, I, I don't think anybody can argue that it's not a threat mm. at this point. They were so brazen. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really scary and intimidating. Mm. It sounds intense. I was supposed to originally go, but then I looked down at my hands and said, mm mm. Yeah. Mm. Not my not my ass. I I know they would target me. They would go straight to me. So To be honest, like some protesters had to um help and I won't say her name because I don't know if she wants to be publicly identified, but um mm. a quite prominent um, black woman mm. um, 
had to help her, like, escort her away because some Nazis broke through the police kettle to come and particularly choose her to confront her mm. on the day. Um, and there was, there, there just that weren't, weren't that many black people there, mm. and I don't, I don't blame them at all. Yeah. For, I don't blame you for not coming. Um, it didn't feel, it didn't even feel safe for white people, so I can't imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I saw two um, African boys, I saw a video that they put up on social media warning their friends not to attend mm. and saying it's not worth it. So I read the comments because I like to talk to myself. Mm. But the comments were all like, you know, if you have nothing to fear, come down. Just like egging them on, wanting them to come down. Could you imagine Mm-mm. if we showed up? Ooh. Mm. And already over-policed. Yeah an institutionally vulnerable community mm. at that rally would have been disastrous for everyone, Yeah, I think. But for, you know, kudos to those who did turn up and a lot of allies really, really showed up, showed mm. up for the community, which was really nice. But, um, you know, what you said, Ayan, afterwards about how this rally is great, but it, like, we need to keep fighting every day mm. against that sort of racism mm. is also equally, yeah, yeah an important and valid point, yeah. Keep yeah. the momentum up, mm-hmm. and yeah, just don't don't think it's one event was successful mm-hmm. that we nipped it in the butt. Like it's it's ongoing, and I think we should create that mentality. Mm. Time for a tune. Time mm. for a tune. So this is Alice Sky, and it's called Friends with Feelings. provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. I'm Philippe Cousteau from Earth Echo International, and you're listening to Out of the Blue, 855 AM, 3CR's Marine and Ocean News Program. Guatemala. I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore Black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Ayan, George, Lauren and myself, Anya. Today is the first show of our special summer program called Summer School. School spelt with a K. <laughs> Because we, we're cool, right? <laughs> yeah. So to kick off the show, we have um, a very special guest today. Her name is Dr. Crystal McKinnon. 
Dr. Crystal McKinnon is a Yamachi woman and is currently working at RMIT as a Vice Chancellor's Indigenous Research Fellow. And one of her projects is working with legal academics and historians on an Australian Research Council Discovery Indigenous project called Indigenous Leaders Lawful Relations from Encounter to Treaty. Her work has looked at concepts of indigenous sovereignty and indigenous resistance through the use of the creative arts, including music and literature. Crystal is the co-editor of History, Power and Text, Cultural Studies and Indigenous Studies. And her work has been published in several books and journals, including Making Settler Colonial Space, Perspectives on Race, Place and Identity, The Alternative Law Journal and Biography. Basically a very, very accomplished woman and we're very, very happy to talk to her today. Thanks so much for talking to us today, Crystal. Thanks for having me. I sound much more fancy when you're... (laughs) That's not true at all. Just goes to show how humble you are. Um, Let's start with the basics for our listeners. What do the terms Indigenous sovereignty and self-determination mean? So I guess self-determination at its heart is about being able to choose um, and determine what you do you know, in life. And I guess when you're talking about it in relation to Aboriginal people, it's about the community being able to make its own choices mm-hmm. about what happens to it. So, um, and I see, and others do as well, see that the rights for an Aboriginal community to be self-determining comes from sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And if you want to think about self-determination in practice, um, you could look at the Aboriginal Health Service, for instance, which, or um, the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency, you know, places that you probably walk, walk past every day, you know, the health service is down on um, Nicholson Street in Fitzroy, mm. um, you know, uh, Mazer Gym on Gertrude Street, which is right near you guys, I think. Mm. Um, all of these places, they're all self-determining um, organisations. These are community-created organisations to meet a community need and they're determined and run by a community. They've got boards and that sort of thing. Mm. But the rights to have those places, I guess, um, um, I guess all communities should have those rights too, but one of the places that um, Aboriginal community gets those rights from is through sovereignty. does that all make sense? Or yeah, so sort of to leaving decision-making to the people who know their community best, in a way. Yeah, which is the community itself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I mean, mm. yeah. yeah and, you know, um, in all of these places, the way that they run is through community, you know, over 18 kind of, um, you know, get voting rights and... They all have their own constitutions and the yeah. way that those organisations are run. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe um, we can talk a little bit about the, the history from which it all begins. So everyone knows about, you know, Anzac Day. It's globally recognised and there's lots of literature dedicated to telling the origins and importance of the day. But not many people know about the Frontier Wars. Could you maybe talk to us about the Frontier Wars and how that ties in with the First Nations People's Resistance Movement? Um. <coughs> I might, maybe I might um, backtrack slightly mm-hmm. and um, I'll just do, I'll do, I'll tell you a little bit about sovereignty, I guess. Yeah, of course. Um, that um, might be a question, I guess, I guess sovereignty comes up in lots of 
protest actions and it's the way that um, a lot of people, a lot of Aboriginal people articulate fights for sovereignty. Sovereignty never ceded. You see it all the time on mm. events, um, people's email addresses, you know, calling nation sovereignty never ceded. But I don't really know if people um, fully comprehend what that means. Mm-hmm. And I guess sovereignty in terms of a Western legal definition is solely about the rights to govern other people and the rights to govern a territory. Whereas Indigenous sovereignty is about those things, but also about you know, relationships to land, relationships to um, country, relationships to people, kinship structures, mm. ancestral beliefs. Um, sorry, not ancestors and religious beliefs, you know, creation mm. stories. It's about all of those things. So I guess it's about history, place, belief system. So it encompasses a whole lot more. Mm. And um, I just wanted to say that because I think it um, will help people understand what treaty is about too. Because mm. I guess when you introduced me and you said that I was a Yamaji woman, mm. that's where I get my sovereignty from, mm-hmm. you know, from being from that particular country, which is in on the west coast of Australia. Yeah. And it's kind of an anchor, I guess, for people. So when people describe themselves as being from um, Gunditjmara country, which is down on the west coast of Victoria, mm. like that's the anchor, I guess, to their articulations of their own Aboriginal sovereignty. Mm. Um, does that all make sense? Of course, yeah. No, that does make a lot of sense, um, yeah. So I'm just checking <laughs> in because I can talk a bit fast and I don't know it's early in them. No, it's a bit <laughs> early in the morning, but yeah. <laughs> but um, the next thing you were talking about was the frontier wars. And um, I guess if anybody is listening and they want to have a really good way to um, look at frontier wars, just chuck into Google to try... Um, um, Frontier Wars mm. and the, all the first page that comes up is this amazing resource that came out of Newcastle Uni which is an interactive map where you can mm. click on different places and it'll tell you um, what happened there mm. including non-Indigenous so it's not just about um, it's a massacre map and have non-Indigenous and Indigenous and it'll give you the full background about what happens and it's also a mm. Interactive. When you click on more information, you can also see what are they called? Like a satellite image of the country. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but the frontier wars um, are linked to what's happening today. Like I don't see. I think in the way that people talk about history and people like to divide it up into kind of neat things of the past, mm-hmm. but the frontier was very much present in today's society and what's happening now. Mm. You know, it's all a part of one kind of ongoing violent settler colonial state where mm. people are locked up um, or killed. Quite that's one of my dogs. <laughs> people are locked up and killed mm-hmm. and, um, um, you know, suffering violence and death at the hands of the state so it's mm. all a part of the same story it's not yeah. um, 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's not something that happened in the past. It's still still happening today, but in a different sort of legalized form in a way, isn't it? Um, yeah, legalized. I guess it's entrenched within yeah, yeah. within the state and its institutions and policing and everything. Yeah. 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 And you talked yeah, a little bit about... Yeah, and... Murder and custody. Mm. Um, public drunkenness. Um, mm. Recently, like, it's all a part of the same story, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, go on, sorry. Yeah. No, I was just going to ask, because you were talking about, um, you know, the connection to land, which is something that um, we hear about a lot, especially in popular discourse, you know, the Marble decision, which overturned the legal doctrine of terra nullius and is often seen as a, as a huge win for Indigenous land rights. But mm-hmm. how has the Marble decision and the concept of native title in general Affected or shaped Indigenous sovereignty, if it if it has at all. Mm. Um, I think it's important to separate out native title and land rights. Mm. Often they're used interchangeably, and they're really different mm-hmm. concepts. Native titles, you know, the Australian states—that's what the set of laws that came out of Mabo was native title laws, which was about mm. <clears throat> kind of minimising Indigenous rights. Um, and indigenous rights to country and and land, um, whereas land rights is more um, about rights to land, but you know unequivocally yeah. rights to access, rights to control country yeah. in all the ways um, that one could imagine. Mm. But um, I don't think I don't think that um, it's shaped. Indigenous sovereignty itself, mm. but it certainly shaped discussions about Indigenous sovereignty because yeah. um, the Mabo decision explicitly stated that it can deal with the question of Indigenous sovereignty mm. in um, in Mabo Number One and its findings because it's you know as I said, Western sovereignty is about the rights to govern a territory and you know it's recognised internationally as those rights, whereas Indigenous sovereignty creates a problem for the Australian state in terms of its rights to govern. Yeah. So basically, Mabo's like, yeah, we can see that Indigenous sovereignty is here, but this isn't a question that we can deal with, because if they dealt with that, then their rights to make those decisions would be pulled into question, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and because of, I guess, the weight and the uh, the... the um, Mabo was such a huge um, decision. Um, it has really kind of eclipsed all of the discussions mm. um, about Indigenous sovereignty. And, mm. you know, Professor Ailey Morton Robinson um, is one of the leading scholars in this country who writes mm-hmm. a lot about Indigenous sovereignty. But um, it's still a kind of burgeoning area academically, I think, where mm. people are just starting... Um, or more and more it's becoming present in people's work about what Indigenous sovereignty is and Mm. what the possibilities of it are. Yeah, yeah. And it's important to move from, I guess, the Western view of what sovereignty is because it's different for for different communities and different people. And that's a a very good point that you raise. Yeah, I guess... um, 
yeah, it is talking about rights to govern and um, the rights to control those territories, certainly. But when people talk about Indigenous sovereignty, it just it means that and more. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And um, I think we might have to wrap up soon, but we can't leave without talking about treaty. Um, uh-huh. Could you maybe talk about what treaty is and what's the difference between treaty and constitutional recognition? They're vastly the big question. But treaty, you know, one of the things about treaty is that when we talk about sovereignty, as I was saying before, People's individual Aboriginal sovereignty comes from those those anchors to those to their different countries, whether it's Wurundjeri or Boon or Yamaji. Um, and one of the important things about treaty is that each of these sovereign groups have different rights and different needs. Like what mm-hmm. somebody on Wurundjeri country wants to negotiate with the government is very different from what somebody. Um, or could be very different. Mm-hmm. Somebody in Ghana country might want, you know, yeah. down Gippsland's way. And treaty can't come about through government elected people making one giant document that covers all the different sovereign groups, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, so treaty, I guess, is just about a contract or um, a, you know, Coexisting, you know, whatever it whatever it is, mm. it hasn't been um, articulated yet. What could be in it? But um, mm. the first and foremost has to be individualised amongst all the different um, groups. There can't just be one document between the state yeah. and the borders it creates. Mm. Um, constitutional recognition is just about putting a recognition aspect in Australia's constitution, recognising or um, acknowledging um, Indigenous people within it. That's basically it. Mm. And this is why Victorian community and South Australian and lots of other communities have wholeheartedly rejected it before Mm. um, and don't want to talk about it before a treaty is on the table. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Or before a treaty has been struck. Yeah. Mm. And it's such a big question, but that just means that you just have to come back on the show another time to talk about it. Um, but thank you so much for joining <laughs> sure. us today, Crystal. Um, it's been an absolute thank pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime. Have you ever wondered about the meaning of the terms identity politics, intersectionality, turf, or institutional racism? Same here. This summer, Tuesday Breakfast is going back to school to answer these questions and more. Join us as we learn from experts, academics, writers, activists and people with lived experiences to share their knowledge on decolonisation, sovereignty and self-determination, race and identity, sexuality and gender and disability and accessibility. Knowledge shouldn't be locked away at a university, so let us bring it to you. Tune into Summer School. Tuesday mornings from 7am starting the 8th of January, 855am or via 3cr.org.au and check out our Instagram, 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, for more details.
we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law. 6 p.m. Tuesdays. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR for our special summer program, Summer School, and today we're looking at decolonization, sovereignty and self-determination. The track you just heard uh, was by Briggs. It's called The Children Came Back, and it's featuring Gurumul and Duane Everett-Smith. Such a beautiful song. Thanks for suggesting it, Ayan. And the video clip for it is really, really beautiful. It has lots of images of um, Indigenous protests and just, like, really... Yeah, it's really, really it cool. It was such a good song. Yeah. yeah. Um, that really brought up the energy in the studio, and we're really excited to be talking to our next guest... Um, our next guest is Robin Oxley. Robin Oxley is a Tharawal woman currently completing a higher degree by research in criminology at Monash University. She is also a lecturer in criminology for the Faculty of Arts at Monash with research interests in Indigenous affairs and experiences within the criminal justice system. Robin is a strong activist in the spaces of social justice, human rights and self-determination for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, she's also a Tuesday Breakfast favourite, <laughs> both for the show and in our Twitter space, and we're super excited to talk to her. Thank you for joining us today, Robin. Thanks for having me, guys, again. It's nice to be back. Um, so let's jump right in and talk about the link between sovereignty, self-determination, and the criminal justice system. What does the concept of self-determination in this space mean, and what would it practically look like? So, uh, firstly, I guess uh, Aboriginal sovereignty was never ceded mm-hmm. uh, in Australia, and um, when we look at self-determination within the criminal justice system, um, itself is, is making decisions over matters that affect the lives of Aboriginal people. And this right to self-determination was taken away, and it's now time to reinstate that. Um, so it's practised in all aspects of Indigenous affairs, so not only just criminal justice, but the health, the housing, education, employment, and programs and services that are led and delivered by Aboriginal people for the Aboriginal community. Mm-hmm. So I guess within the criminal justice system, um, they've always handed their problem, which is the high imprisonment percentage of Aboriginal people, to the Aboriginal community mm. at the end of the process. Mm. And this simply shows just a, lab, a shallow level of commitment by the government um, to address the policies and legislation made without an Aboriginal person sitting at the table where mm. these decisions are final. Mm-hmm. So these policies and legislation, um, they have an adverse effect on the lives of Aboriginal people through the policing courts and corrections. And, you know, there are decisions being made without the right to self-determination of Aboriginal people to ensure that, you know, these decisions do not impact negatively and increase the experience within the criminal justice system. Mm. And I guess, like, this is shown through like, the prison population is just increasing alarmingly of Aboriginal people. Um, and even from, I guess, June 2017 to June 2018, there was a 5% increase of Aboriginal people in, in prison. Mm. And I guess what's more alarming is the fact that three out of four Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander prisoners had been uh, imprisoned or under sentence previously. So 
Yeah, I mean, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody made you know, 339 recommendations 28 years ago to reduce the experience within the criminal justice system and improve the lives of Aboriginal people. So it's questionable how serious Royal Commissions are taken by the government when it comes to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander affairs. Mm. And that's what I was going to talk about, talk about next, actually, the Royal Commission into mm-hmm. Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, which, as you said, happened about 30 years ago. Um mm-hmm. So what were the major recommendations or findings from that and what improvements, if any, have been made in the criminal justice system since then? Uh, okay, so I guess, like I said, there were 339 recommendations mm-hmm. um, from the report released in 1991, so yeah, almost 30 years ago. Mm. Um, these recommendations are still valid. However, very few have been implemented and if they have been implemented, like the establishment of them has had minimal effect. Mm. So with every census on prison populations or deaths in custody, these Aboriginal numbers continue to grow. So the most prominent one is that imprisonment should be a sanction of last resort. This was one of the final, um, I guess, recommendations from this report. Um, and it's important as it really pushes for something else to be done or more to be done other than locking Aboriginal people up. Mm-hmm. So the institutionalising Aboriginal people does not make the issue of offending go away. It creates more issues and stress on Aboriginal communities, which then makes it unfair for services to adequately respond to the diverse needs of, of Aboriginal people. Mm. I guess as for changes within the criminal justice system, we've seen the Victorian, well, in Victoria, um, the Victorian Aboriginal Justice Agreements established, which in turn has developed the Koori Court. And no matter what your views are on the Koori Court and the reasoning behind them, they exist because of the Royal Commission mm. and the recommendations. Um, and there have been some changes, and it's definitely put Aboriginal affairs on the criminal justice system's agenda. Mm. I guess the mere fact that imprisonment population percentages keep rising, and more so for Aboriginal women, show that most likely the improvements and change must be directed elsewhere, such as policing or sentencing. Mm. It's because police are the initial contact people have with the criminal justice system. So it must be questioned as to why Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are over-policed at alarming rates compared to non-Indigenous people. Like, we're not inherently criminal. Mm. Thus, the need for improving policing, similar to sentencing or breaches of parole. Mm. So it kind of had to question what's happening in sentencing as these Aboriginal prison populations continue to rise. Mm. Yeah. And... You know, when we talk about the um, you know rate of Aboriginal people's incarceration, according to a recent um, Deloitte Access Economics report, since the Royal Commission, deaths in custody have halved, but the rate of um, Aboriginal people's incarceration has actually doubled. Um, and this unfair and obviously racialized institutionalization, criminalization of First Nations people has galvanised a lot of folks into pushing for prison abolition, which is a concept that was seen as radical maybe even 10 years ago. What are your thoughts on this? Is it time to overhaul the system completely? I I read the report, and firstly, I kind of wanted to share some of the findings. Mm. There was a couple of reports um, from the 10 years post the Royal Commission into Mm. Aboriginal Death in Custody, Mm. and also um, a database that tracks Aboriginal Death in Custody called Death Inside. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess for the purpose of these statistics, like I have to note that, that it counts for all police and prison deaths of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And I'm not really sure this report wasn't clear on whether it was prison or whether it was police mm. deaths in custody. Mm. Uh, but according to the findings from the 10 years post the Royal Commission, from 1991 to 2000, there were 126 Aboriginal deaths in custody. Then from 2001 to 2010, there was 128 deaths in custody. 
And from 2011 to last year, 2018, there were 93. Mm. Now, 10 years prior to the Royal Commission, there were 99 deaths in custody, mm. which saw public outcry and, and the um, establishment of the Royal Commission. So I'm not sure how it's halved mm. or where. So maybe it is in police, maybe it is in prison. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I'm not sure. But it definitely hasn't halved overall. Yeah. Um, mm. But as for the prison abolition, yes, I, it was totally seen as a radical idea that mainstream Australia just couldn't seem to understand. Yeah. Mm. Um, because the concept of prison is so ingrained in people's minds in Australia. Um, they cannot imagine anything past imprisonment. Mm. And as we see more academics researching what it would look like and explaining the reasons behind why, behind why it would, you know, it's important to abolish prisons, we see a shift in response by society. Mm -hmm. So prisons do not perform the task that they're meant to undertake. You know, they're meant to isolate offenders and rehabilitate back into society. Now, there's more to just prison itself. Um, Angela Davis stated that the slavery of African Americans Mm -hmm. translated into incarceration, where marginalised people continue to be be controlled and institutionalised. And I guess the mere fact nothing has improved or even decreased within the criminal justice system for Aboriginal people since the Royal Commission shows that major change does need to happen. Um, in this report, it clearly states that 10 themes, so they um, broke down the recommendations into 10 themes um, that reflect self-determination, have not even been implemented at 50%. Mm. So we've got to have a seat at the table if things are going to change. I mean, there are diverse factors that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and we must have diverse solutions if things are going to improve. So yeah. we can't let the same government make decisions over our own affairs. It hasn't worked. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if listeners, if you're just tuning in, we're talking to Robin Oxley about the um, need and representation of First Nations people in the criminal justice system. Now, Robin, we can't not talk about the out of home care system. Uh, we can't not talk about the out of home care system if we're going to be tackling questions about the criminal justice system. We know that the number of Aboriginal children in out of home care is disproportionately high compared to their populations. Um, size. And recently, the New South Wales government passed legislation enabling the adoption of children from the state's foster care system without parental consent, which many community organisations have loudly denounced and likened to another stolen generation waiting to happen. So what does self-determination in this context of children, families and kinship mean? And what is the government getting wrong with regards to this? This is really... um quite a sensitive issue and I I believe that there are varying types of stolen generations that continue to occur throughout many aspects of Mm -hmm. the control by the government. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are no exceptions when it comes to child welfare and the removal of Aboriginal children and placing them into non-Aboriginal families. Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean, even in May 1997, so, you know, over 20 years ago, there was a report into the stolen generation that was released and and it concluded that the past practices of removing Indigenous children from their families amounted to genocide. Now, Indigenous families and communities had endured gross violations of their human rights um, and it continues to affect their daily lives and it's been proven to affect the lives of Aboriginal families. Mm. Um, so, you know, the government in New South Wales has taken upon themselves to make decisions regarding Aboriginal affairs without having Aboriginal people at the table. The mm. Problem Solving 101 is to ask the community needs, you know, what, what they need to ensure that the safety and well-being of children is a top priority. The self-determination in this respect is about empowering the community to make the right decisions, Mm. take ownership of what services are needed, Mm. where funding and resources are going to make the difference. So it's not enough for government 
to make these decisions or informed decisions with no regard of how the forcible removal of children and how this continues to impact Aboriginal communities. Mm. So we've got to have more than a consultation or tick-boxing exercise if the government's serious about the right self-determination mm-hmm. of Aboriginal people. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's more than, yeah, ticking boxes, as you said. It's mm-hmm. about actually having people who represent the community at the table to make those decisions. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and maybe let's talk about the steps moving on from here, what do reparations in this context look like, um, if, if it can look, um, I guess, appropriate? And how does a treaty fit into all of this? Okay, well, I guess reparations should be more than just a promise or an aspiration to make things better. Um, language that's used by the government needs to be more than just a flippant remark or comment. There's got to be substance to it. Mm. So we must have accountability when it comes to policies and legislation that impacts negatively on the lives of Aboriginal people. So the government, police, courts, corrections, you know, they all have to play a part in Mm. ensuring the prison population decreases and self-determination is a priority when making decisions on legislations and policies. So it's not enough when the problem escalates, Mm. pass it over to Aboriginal people and offer a flawed opportunity to practice self-determination. We need to be included at the beginning of the process so it's about including the excluded, and that'll make a difference and, and improve outcomes for Aboriginal people within the criminal justice system. Mm. So as a treaty, this should look very different for each community. Mm. Um, there's been a push for clan-based treaties in Victoria, which is a clever way of ensuring that not only local council but the state government are active listening and involved. Mm. So with treaties, you get one shot to make it right. So they must not be rushed. So therefore, it's a process whereby, if it's done right, will mm. do positive changes for Aboriginal people. Mm. So once the treaty is binding, it's up to the Aboriginal community to ensure that the government is held accountable for any decisions made. Mm. So one of the major ways to do this is to empower the Aboriginal community to practice their right to self-determination mm. in all aspects of Aboriginal affairs. Mm. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. And I guess the consistent theme that we've been hearing all morning from, from you and Crystal is the recognition that Aboriginal people don't exist as one you know, cluster of people. There are different mm-hmm. communities there and each voice needs to be heard. Um, and th- I think that's a really important message to, to be out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today, Robin. That was very, very My illuminating. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Say it loud, say it clear. Refugees are welcome here. Say it loud, say it clear. Refugees are welcome here. Say it loud, say it clear. Refugees are welcome here. Say it loud, say it clear. Refugees are welcome here. Say it loud, say it clear. Refugees are welcome here. Say it loud, say it clear. Refugees are welcome here. Everywhere we walk upon in this world, one indigenous group of another has once lived there before for thousands and thousands of years. One of the most intricate and respectful ways to have at that place. We need to remember that. You're on indigenous land, original clan. Indigenous land is where you be. Indigenous land, it always was. Indigenous land always will be. How do you feel? Tune in, dig deep, and clean up by purchasing some fantastic discounted gardening books from 3CR's online garden store. 
We have books on water-wise gardening, organic vegetables, roses, climbers and creepers and even clematis. It's easy. Just go to our website, 3cr.org.au and follow the links on the front page. Don't have internet access? Call the station during business hours between 9 and 5 and we'll post out a catalogue in the mail. All proceeds help keep Melbourne's favourite gardening show on air for another year. Tune in 7.30am every Sunday morning. listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan, George, Anya and Lauren. And the song that you just heard was called Sarong Samurai by Air Leakey featuring Twin Tribe. Um, so now on the studio we have Ronnie Karini, who is an activist and musician and a former refugee who fled Indonesia's military crackdown of West Papua. He is the director of Rise of the Morning Star, a platform that uses cultural arts to bring awareness to the struggles of West Papuans. Ronnie is also part of the 3CR family as a former current affairs coordinator and occasionally provides support and analysis to the program Voices of West Papua, which you should check out. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Ronnie. Good morning, Ayan, and thank you for the wonderful introduction. Oh, I'm glad you like it. This is all you. This is just me putting it into a paragraph. You did all this amazing work. <laughs> thank you, thank you. No, it's awesome to be uh, back and speaking with the family at Tricia. So. Yay, that's, that's what we love to hear. So let's start off by um, perhaps looking at the West Papua pre-colonial era. So I'll just, yeah, just giving it a, putting it into a bit of a context where, um, like many indigenous people around the world and the two previous, um, speakers or the interview is, um, if I'm not wrong, it's, um, Carol Crystal and Robin Edmonton. Mm-hmm. The indigenous people of West Papua have lived way over 50,000 years and Land cultivation was very much one thing that um, has been recognized since the uh, missionaries and as well as colonial colonizations. Um, the Dutch came in and they recognized one thing that in New Guinea, especially, yes, yeah, West, the eastern part is Papua New Guinea, an independent state. The west is uh, where West Papua now currently occupied under Indonesian brutal regime. So back then, um, after realizing that the people are, use the land to cultivate and live a subsistence way of life, and the kinship system, which was very much strong back then, and this is one of the history that has not been really looked into. Mm-hmm. The kinship system has gone back 60,000 or more years ago. Just because of our history is 
not black and white, written, and it's very much oratory. It's passed down through songs, dance, the language spoken, and that is still alive today. And so this is the history, like in my upbringing, I, as a refugee, my family is as a refugee growing up in Papua New Guinea, I recognize through this history of the oratory, the oral history, the dance, the music, and that's how I picked up this, this part of history, and I'm still glad and holding on to it very much, even mm. though living in Papua New Guinea and now over a decade in Australia, that has the one thing that holds me strong in terms of cultural identity. Mm. And so that part of that history is very much connected with the land the, and as well as the people. And that is one thing that is still the strength of yeah. many indigenous people around the world today. Yeah. But then colonialism comes in and, you know, it comes with these three Gs, gold, gold, mm. and glory. Wow. And so many of these indigenous people, especially with West Papuans, that's how we'll, our history is still fighting for our recognition mm. of full governance and full sovereignty. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm glad, um, I guess one of the reasons I wanted to um, start off by looking at pre-colonial um, West Papua is to show that uh, West Papua didn't come into existence after colonialism, that it's, it's, it was functioning, it was a community, there was kinships. So I wanted to make sure that I started with that because I guess that's the aim, is to go back to that. Um, so prior to Indonesia's rule of West Papua, the region was colonized by the Dutch. What was life like under their rule? Because I know there's an idea that there's a softer colonialist, that there's a better oppressor. And I want to perhaps ask you what, the, what life was like for them under their rule. Yes, yeah, so since um, the islands in, the, in what was called as East Dutch Indies, um, the spices. Back then, there's no fridge, and so a lot of the European uh, powers travel across and looking for those um, spices and yeah, just to for exploration. And so, the island of Maluku, the eastern part of Indonesia, basically, and then all the islands, West Timor, East Timor, Flores, and then come as far as Papua. The Dutch was already there's a company that has come travel across that area, even as far as Australia, down to Tasmania, and go back up. Back then, they didn't have the idea of occupying or administering um, the places that they travel. Their aim was to find spices. And so in West Papua, oh, they discovered Papua like after 200 years of occupying Indonesia. Basically, their administration was based in Java, Back then, it's called Batavia. And so that's the administration. And then when they discovered West Papua, which our history under the Dutch was less than 50 years, mm. um, they established a, uh, basically an administration in Hollandia, which is now Jayapura. And so life under the Dutch was basically... Because they didn't have this interest of occupying the land and administering the area, 
Um, they didn't really engage much. Basically, they just involved in just coming in, grabbing, practically exploiting the land and taking whatever resources that is there and go back to Europe. Mm. And during that time, they did brought one, it was in the early 50s, and they brought in a journalist from U.S. And in 1953, there was a written piece that was posted in the New York Times saying about the wealth of this land and the resources mm. that one can find, which they've already discovered in parts of Africa. Yeah, and, and that's definitely something we're going to look at, the exploitation of natural resources. Um, if you're listening, if you're tuning in or listening, um, we have on the line Ronnie Karani. Ronnie Karani is an activist and musician and also a former producer of Voices of West Papua, which is a show on 3CR Community Radio. So um, let's move to um, now, Ronnie, to Indonesia's involvement. Can you tell us about the 1969 Act of Free Choice? So basically 1969, um, Act of No Choice for Papuans, Mm -hmm. it started off with this article that was published in U.S. and then U.S. took an interest on it under the directorship of um, Dallas, who is the former CIA director, and also the global politics that happened at that time in with the Cold War period. And so the Indonesian government at that time under Sukarno used the opportunity with the Cold War and bargained its position. And basically on one hand, it uh, purchased some... Um, military ammunition from the Soviet, and on the other hand, pressuring the U.S. government under um, Kennedy mm-hmm. to President Kennedy and to 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 allow them to occupy or expand from just parts of in the island of Java to the eastern parts, which Timor was a victim of that, which is 1975 occupation and as well as West Papua. And so there was an agreement made in 1959 to pressure Dutch to hand over the sovereignty of West Papua, but the Dutch resisted. And so in 61, the Dutch quickly established a legislative council and as well as recognize West Papua's sovereignty uh, by allowing the Papuans to have a morning star flag as well as the national anthem, and try to aim for a roadmap for full freedom in 1971. Mm. But what happened in between 1961, 1st of December, till in 1969, the roadmap of Papua Merdeka begins uh, straight in 19 days after. That, so for indigenous West Papuans, we smell or we feel freedom mm. only for 19 days. Mm-hmm. And Indonesia came in with the military operation called Trikora. And then they uh, illegally occupied West Papua in 1963. And then in 1967, they signed an agreement, a 50-year lease agreement with in, uh, 
the Freeport McMoran, US-based Freeport McMoran. Mm. And then two years later, they knew that things would look bad or backfire on them. So they have to do this plebiscite, which is act of no choice in 1969. So that's uh, a bit of background to that 1969. So it's a whitewash. It's basically for Papuans, we did an exercise, mm-hmm. our right, even though the Dutch right recognized that and established that, but it didn't. So up until today, that is our ongoing fight. So we are a nation in waiting for our recognition of self-governance and full sovereignty. What mm-hmm. happened in 1969, it can be stated as illegal, but up until today, you can't find any information to prove that it was an act of free choice or the so-called yeah. act of free choice. Right. And I've, I've also seen it online where people have called it, like you've been calling it, no act, um, uh, sorry, act, uh, no act of, act no of free choice. Yeah, no act of choice. And because also with the legislative council or the um, when the referendum, the so-called refer- referendum was happening, that it was only a small number of people who were doing the voting? That's correct. Hand-selected under duress condition. And it was church leaders, community elders, uh, chiefs from various councils. They went around for a month. But at the time as well, the UN representatives or officials were there to also carry out the, the counting and uh, the process. But Indonesian military were carrying out their own uh, version of this process as well. Mm. So for up until today, one thing that I have noticed with uh, a lot of researchers out there, uh, not uh, like many of um, foreign researchers, mm. they, they keep mentioning about the referendum. There wasn't a referendum that took place in 1969. It wasn't a referendum. It wasn't one man, one vote. It was basically a cultural approach by from Java, a perspective of bringing people together in one area, and if they raise their hand, that's it. We go with the, the, the majority. Mm-hmm. But for West Papua context, it was with the military. They went into villages and they dragged people, basically chiefs, community elders, post them, take them out, and then put them in a condition, in a in a space, small space room with gun pointed at their hand and threaten them. If they don't vote, the guns will be cut. Mm-hmm. And these are people, there are witness accounts of this, um, this incident that took place. So it wasn't a referendum, even though it was mentioned it's going to be a plebiscite, it wasn't either. And so for many of us, Papuans, indigenous people, it was act of no choice. You have no choice. You were not consulted in the process of um, early in the 60s, in 62, the New York agreement was made. Mm. There was no consultation in the process either. So that is why for us, we we still uh, believe that uh, our recognition for self-governance and full sovereignty is at the, it's in the responsibility of the international community, mm. especially um, Australian government. They were in, involved in West Papua's um, administration transfer, which under the Dutch, Australia was very much supportive of West Papua. Mm. But then but then when the Cold War period kicks in, Australia quickly changes foreign policies up until today, which they recognize Indonesia's territorial integrity. And so if Indonesia pick up a pass, mm. um, Australia will be quickly um, running to Jakarta and apologize for someone's 
uh, behavior in the government or someone mentioned West Papua in Parliament. And now West Papua can't be even mentioned in Parliament. Hmm. I'm... I'm sort of sensitive about time um, but there's a lot of questions that I want to ask you so I'm going to just skip a few Um, can you tell us um, perhaps changing track and making it um, a bit positive if if I can say that can you tell us about the rise of the Morning Star movement as well as the importance of cultural music as like a tool for liberation Yes, so so music has been a very much part of my bringing and way of life, and and I believe in many indigenous people around the world. And so, rise of the morning star comes with the there was a an idea around a pricing and how we can use the the weapon we have, which is the drum, the tifa, or just the, our voice as a weapon, and so. We came up with that, inspired by uh, enough people in the U.S. Rise, the crump dance. I, you, I, hopefully you know those the crump dance. Mm-hmm. So we inspired by that, and so we wanted to continue the music as a as a weapon of choice. And so we used kundu, the tifa, the drum, for if for terrestrial islands they call warup. So it's like if you the, you bring the kundus together and you beat. It becomes a loud voice. So what our aim is to the, the the more people engage and know about the issue and through music, it speaks through the hearts and minds and opens up the space for dialogue um, on the issue of West Papua. And basically, it's also a trans indigenous movement. Basically, idea of connecting with one people, one soul, soul water, which is one salt water or one ocean. Mm-hmm. So this kind of goes across. Uh, the Pacific. So that is the conversation that um, we are we are bringing it forward to bring the stories and the voices of multiple indigenous peoples across mm-hmm. the, the Oceania and beyond communities living in diaspora, and using that as a weapon and speaking about our right to self determination. And that is where it comes in as well, where you maintaining your culture and reviving it, cultural revival through that process as well. So that's what Rise of the Morning Star has been doing and bringing in the uh, plight of West Papua basically through that Mm. space. And the song that we played um, before we introduced you, which was called Sorong Samari, um, I found that song from the Rise of the Morning Star YouTube page because they've got a YouTube page and a Facebook page. So if anybody is interested... Rise of the Morning Star can be found on Facebook, um, YouTube. Uh, what other platforms, Ronnie, can we find? Yes, yeah, so basically a lot of the, the, what's happening out there, social media is connecting a, most, uh, most of us. And so, yeah, basically Facebook, YouTube. But as well as this, we, we engage directly with musicians and artists. So follow um, the Yoti Indie Project. Um, Brooking Brown, Natalie Rice. These are people we working as trans-indigenous uh, movement to build solidarity and pushing on for our decolonization and self-determination of indigenous people. So Rice has been working on a number of um, platforms as well as a lot of the Australian musicians here in Australia, but also in the region. We do a lot of uh, performance around as well as festivals and music venues. 
So keep, a, keep an eye out. Sorong Samurai mm-hmm. is the, now the name we use for Tua. Perhaps in 2020 we'll see um, some Melbourne in, at the Mayan Music Bowl. Mm, oh, I mean, and tickets as well. Hopefully we we will be able to purchase them and and, and attend, which we're very excited for. Um, so final question, can you tell us about the Cell for Justice campaign that's scheduled for 2019? Cell for Justice campaign, yes. It's an exciting um, campaign that is coming up and a lot of um, like-minded people, a lot do come to Tricia community and have engaged in different um Campaigns. It 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 started it started off with the the, the idea of um, solidarity with the indigenous mob, and so in 2013 we did uh, Freedom Flotilla, Land and Sea Ahoy, and so basically connecting the stories of the indigenous people here as well as up in in West Papua, and so under the leadership of Uncle Kevin Bassacott, an Arabana elder in South Australia. And our West Papuan leader in Melbourne, Jacob Rumbiak, we come together, and so we did this 5,000 kilometer journey, starting from um, Lake Air, and then all the way up till the northern tip, and then we went across just near the border of West Papua. So that is to build, build and strengthen indigenous and solidarity um, movement, and so that builds on that with self-justice with the refugee issue, climate change issue in the Pacific and connecting the people as well with what's happening. Like we know the deterrent policies, Australian government deterrent policies on Manus Island and Nauru. This is another initiative or campaign to really bring this issue again to the forefront, but at this, with this time connecting the people and their stories. Because many of the Papuans uh, also lived and married, died in, on Manus Island since the 60s up till the 70s. And even now today, so we're connecting that stories, especially people-to-people um, relations, and highlighting these issues, especially with refugee issues. Yep. Thank you so much, Ronnie. And, and I'm glad you were able to come on because a lot of us um, don't know about what's happening with West Papua, even though they're like a stone away pretty much. So, um, And I don't think people understand that. Like we need to know about all the liberation movements, the global liberation movements, um, that it's not just solely on the West Papuan community. It's on all of us to get the information out. So thank you so much, Ronnie. And thank you for giving us the, the space to have this dialogue or conversation, especially because that is essential. And this is how it viral, it goes out there and people listen to this conversation and being aware of the, the situation of, like, West Papua is Australia's closest neighbor. It's just less than 200 kilometers, mm. basically, um, there. And because of the media blockade and heavily military repression, nothing, not many information has came out. So it's good we're having this conversation. Mm. So thank you. Um, thank you. And Ayan, yeah? Ayan. Ayan. Yes. Yeah. No thank worries. You for the team. Yes. And Voices of West Papua, can, um, you can listen to it every Tuesday, 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. Thanks, Ronnie. Thank you. <laughs> Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard, but I think... Oh, bondage up yours! One, two, three, four! Wayward Girl, the intersectional feminist music show. 
Tune in Fridays 9 to 10 through summer on 3CR. You're listening to Tuesday Brekkie on 3CR with myself, George, Ayan, Anya and Lauren. We're coming to the end of our first summer school program. So we're just going to go through a couple of things before we finish. Firstly, after this episode, we'll upload some of the homework links um, on today's topic of self-determination, decolonization and sovereignty. And we'll put up some homework links for next week's program, which will be on racism, race and identity. And we also, uh, if you do have questions that you want us to ask our guests, please let us know. And then we just wanted to mention a couple of events that are coming up. Of course, with Invasion Day, there's the protest. So that's the 26th of January. And then after that is the Ballet Naroon Festival, where there'll be some musicians playing, including Tuesday Breakfast favourite Mojo Juju. Mm. And there's another quick event I wanted to mention, which is called Body and Country on the 2nd of February. And it is about ideas of uh, separating body from country and what does it mean to be in, an Indigenous, trans uh, and or gender diverse person. So mm. it's, a, it's a talk. Mm. Um, so we'll put the link up for that on our page as well. And there's a sh- another show that I want to spruik, which is called Too Pretty to be Aboriginal. It's a documentary and it launches tonight on NITV. Uh, at 7pm and all the events that George um, mentioned will also be up on our Facebook page Um, yeah so go support the community hey see you next week for Racism, Race and Identity